millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode, A Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. This is where we should change our name. We should. <laughs> to Cyrus the Podcast. The Cyrus Podcast. The Cyrus Podcast, because there will be a lot about Cyrus. And I think maybe the 540s is the first time we will have to slow down the pace of our narrative. I, I, I'm not sure how good the sources are, but there will be a lot to tell in the 540s. Yeah, there is. A, I believe there's a lot. And there's a, the, the main historians from ancient history have weighed in on Cyrus, Herodotus, Thucydides, all these guys. And it once again raises the question, what we'll do with Alexander when we get to him? <laughs> You know, I might be retired from work by then, so <laughs> at least I'll have the Herodotus finished, and I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll see. Well, at least we'll get two decades on Alexander. First, we have to do some uh, administration. Yeah. Let's tell them who we are, in case anybody's a new listener. Uh, who are you? I'm Bernie, <laughs> and I live in Scranton, Pennsylvania, USA. Who are you? I'm Dan, and I live in Stockholm, Sweden. As we are far apart. Yes, and we are the fans of history. And we've been counting forward in history from 1000 BC, and we are currently in the 550s BC. Yes, and I think we can do this in seven episodes, but uh, I might have to change that later. Aha. Uh-huh. And these seven episodes do not include a Roman episode. Hmm. I have used up Servius Tullius, and he's still around for all this decade. So there's no Rome at all in this decade. And maybe if we linger long enough and wait to re- take long enough to record these, dec- there'll be something found. <laughs> no, we, we have enough material to work with this. 
We also have a correction coming from my dear friend Radar Magnusson who made the northern, what was the name of the episode, the Scandinavia in the late Bronze Age video. Yes, he did. An episode. Yes, he's what we know, call a fan of history, calls the our Swedish archaeologist. Yes, the uh, maybe the primary expert on the Scandinavian late Bronze Age in the world. Indeed. Tell us what he had to say. Well, he commented on our episode on the coins that were found in Gotland in Sweden. He says, hi, I wish to do a slight correction. There are 500 plus dinars from Trajan found on Gotland and some more in southern Sweden, making up around 5% of all Roman dinars found in Sweden, so not that uncommon. I made a discovery of a Roman dinar south of Stockholm last autumn on a survey dig. In that country, Sodermanland, there is only there are only two Roman dinars previously known, so that was a more uncommon find. Signed, your Swedish archaeologist. That is right next to Stockholm. Stockholm is on the border between Southmanland, Södermanland, okay. and Uppland, Upland. Aha. Uh-huh. So that is very close to here. Interesting. What is he saying exactly? That there there actually were a lot of dinars found there in Gotland before? Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. He's saying that there are more finds than our sources claimed. Aha. Uh-huh. And I do believe him. I do too. I always believe him. You have another message here from a listener. Just came in today from Frank Hick. and Because I just released an episode. So today, we're, we're as we're recording, I just released an episode of What's New in History about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And as I was setting up, he said, Frank said, I haven't listened to this yet, but there's some interesting theories about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe they're a bit too conspiratorial for your taste, Bernie. But Barbara Thiering's theories are very interesting indeed. That's all I know right now. Okay, maybe that will give us uh, material for another what's new in history. Could be, and I'll tell you, there's, I mean, I'm like, this alien stuff that's like, they're, you know, the, that the government is saying is happening, I'll tell you, I, I, my whole belief system is going to be turned upside down, so I'm just going to, not going to make any, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're going to do Cyrus. Uh, do you know uh, of... Uh, the Branch Davidians in Vaco, led by David Koresh. David Koresh, yeah, he was that kind of like a pedophile, crazy, had a lot of guns. Oh, yes. Yeah, Waco, Texas. Yeah, did you know why he was named David Koresh? Is he named after Cyrus? Yes, he's named after Cyrus. Huh. And the reason for that is that Cyrus is such an important person in... Uh, to, to the Jewish faith and to the Christian faith, because he frees the Jews from Babylon. Spoiler for later episodes. <laughs> we can't keep all the spoilers in, but yeah, he's a Messiah. Cyrus is a Messiah blessed by Yahweh. One of Yahweh's blessed. And Koresh is Cyrus in Hebrew, I think. Yeah, Koresh. It's uh, Cyrus in uh, Persian is is a uh, it's Karush. Karush. Yeah. Well, I don't know a better guy named after Cyrus, which is Cy from History with Cy. He's a nicer guy than David Koresh. <laughs> oh, he gets the name from Cyrus, too? Yeah, yeah. Is he Persian? Yeah, he just went to Iran. Oh, cool. Yeah. He has an amazing Cyrus video. So after you've heard uh, us uh, mumble about Cyrus, you can go to 
history with Sire and get a better lesson for all of Sire's history, not just the 550s. Yeah, he's got a one succinct episode. He even does the backstory about the Assyrians, but it is a good episode. So was David Koresh, that's his last name. Is he born that, Koresh, or they changed it to that? Oh, it's, uh, it's an assumed name. Ah, I see. Oh, isn't he clever? At some point, I will do a couple of episodes on him for my mass murder podcast. Oh, all right. In Swedish. But now we're going to talk about Cyrus. And when we move into the 550s for the Middle East, we have uh, five powerful kingdoms. There is... The Persians, not very powerful yet. Persians, all right. The Medes. Medes. Babylonians, who really came out on top from the fall of Assyria. Yep. Uh, Lydians. Oh, yeah. With Croesus. And the Egyptians. Right, oh. And when this whole story has played out, there is only one kingdom left. One kingdom to rule them all. Wow. And it's all because of this guy. And that's why he's called Cyrus the Great. He will not personally conquer all five kingdoms, but he will, he will be the direct cause for that conquest. Yeah, he gets most of them. Yes. And he's also uh, very far to the east. Yeah, we don't even think about that, but he does. He goes the other direction as well. And that's where he dies as well. Yeah. I'm so full of spoilers. Today. I know, I know. Well, we know he dies, but that's it. We'll try to kick it easy in the spoiler. <laughs> He's not around anymore. That's right. We, we know He's obviously dead. <laughs> we don't think so anyway, unless there's some real conspiracy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So let's rewind the tape to the origin of the Persians. Okay. So Persians comprise over half the population of Iran today. It's um, an ancient Iranian people who migrated to the region of Persis by the Persian Gulf named after them. Right. In the 9th century BC, probably, or earlier, people didn't keep track a lot. And remember, Elam kept them in check for a long time. Right. But now Elam is gone and nobody's keeping them in check except the Medes. Mm-hmm. And as I've said before, it's really unclear if the Median Empire even existed. Yeah. Because it is Cyrus that will put this area back into history. And it looks to me a bit like the Medes and the Persians are more of the same. I think so. I feel like they're the same. I, I, think, I think I just recently read somewhere, too, that the reason 
the Iran is called Iran. Is that's the original name? Even the per- Persia is something like Greek, where Persis is from, or the Persians live. And then their real name is like Aryan. They're kind of like an Aryans from the east. They have a large amount of Yamnaya heritage. Yeah, and I think the Medes are similar to Persia. I think they were. I mean, if this all didn't happen, the Persians maybe had just been a part of the Medes all along. And Medes and Persians are Indo-European. Yeah. They, they originate on the steppe. Right. And very different to the Babylonians and the Assyrians How about and the, the Hebrews. Definitely. How about the Elamites? Are they, they're, they're a little different too, probably, right? They're more the... Yeah, I think that they are the definition of different. Yeah. But they're gone, so let's not talk about them anymore. Right. So the Persian domination and the kingdom in the Iranian plateau started as an extension of the Achaemenid dynasty. And this started maybe the 8th century. And there is an eponymous founder called Achaemenes. Okay. And all the Achaemenids are the descendants of this guy. And this Achaemenes built something... The state Parsuma in southwest of Iran. All right. And it's things, it's just a tribe in the big median area. Yeah. But he was succeeded by Taispes, who took the title King of Anshan okay. after seizing the city of Anshan. And that's probably around the 600s when, when the, after the Assyrians cleared out the Elamites, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, around that time. Yep. And uh, he also included Pars proper in his kingdom. Tespius had a son called Cyrus, not our Cyrus, because Cyrus the Great is the second, who also was the king of Anshan. And this first Cyrus had a brother whose name was Ariaramnes. Oh, right, yeah. Keep him in mind. Yes. So this line has come down to Cambyses I. And in 559... BC, Cambyses dies or does something because his life is totally undocumented. We only have later sources for this Persian king. But he is succeeded by our Cyrus, Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great. 559. So So Cambyses named his son after his father, as you do. Right. And this is where Cyrus becomes the king of Anshan. Right. 559, he's the king of Anshan. Yes. So now he's the king. So if you were playing like a video game, you get this little spot. You're the king of Anshan. You're not even the king of Persia. You're just, okay, start. (laughs) See how much empire you could grab. Yes. So you have this tiny kingdom of Anshan. Yeah. (laughs) And now you have to conquer the world. Yeah, right. (laughs) So we know there's a reference to Cambyses I as the king of Anshan and as an Achaemenian. But um, this is somewhat contested, mm-hmm. and there is some confusion here. Remember Cyrus I's brother, Ariaramnes? Yes. He comes down to us as another king of the Persians and an Achaemenian, and he might have been ruling another small Persian kingdom. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it seems to probably be, and that makes the most sense. Yeah, and that kingdom would be Parsa, mm-hmm. different from Anshan. Yeah. So there may be two different kingdoms at this time, and Cyrus only controls one of them. But this is not clear at all, and it's still contested. It is contested. 
Personally, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. My personal, from my research and my, you can only go, right? I think that he probably ruled Anshan and there were some other Persians who were ruling another area. But there's also this Waters guy who suggests that Cyrus is totally unrelated to the Achaemenids. Hmm. Hmm. And that uh, Cyrus's family was of Tespid or Anashite origin instead of Achaemenid. Uh-huh. At some point, the two families may have merged. But I would think they are cousins. Yeah, I or do. Or they are two different branches of the same family tree. That's what I think. But it is contested. So there is this Arsames guy, mm-hmm. who is the son of Ariamnes, and thus the uncle, the granduncle of Cyrus. Yes. It is his uncle, right? I mean, if that's the case, then they are related. Right? I mean, if that's the case, then they're related. That's what I could see. Yeah. And this line coming from Arsamus will reinsert itself into the line of Persian kings, even for Ansham. Yes, it will. And now the natural thing would be that Cyrus would contest the power of the Persians. But uh, with this Arsamus, but Arsamus never fights Cyrus. And at some point, he joins up with Cyrus and becomes a subordinate king to Cyrus. Right. That was, that was a big part of that beginning of the video game. If you get him to go on with you, know, you'll be in good shape. <laughs> yes. Okay, to be clear, Arsamus is the cousin of Cyrus's father, right? Yeah, right. So they're all... Yeah. That's what they say. If they're cousins, then the, the cousins were ruling. Basically, they said that these guys ruled an area to like the north and west of the city of Anshan. So Cyrus was probably the king of, the, of, the, of Anshan. And his father and his grandfather, that's how they named themselves, city of An, you know, king of Anshan. Yes, and there will be a powerful Persian king in the future called Darius I. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. And he's the grandson of Arsamus. That's how Arsamus reinserts right. himself into the line. He's the one who gets us all confused about who's what because he's so truthful. Yeah, but the thing is that Darius could be lying. Right. <laughs> yeah, but we'll talk more about that when we come to him. Exactly. Uh, we have a quote from Herodotus here. Do you want yeah, to read it? Yeah, this is what Herodotus says about... Did you want me to read it? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Please read it. Uh, yeah, Herodotus says about the Persians, Now the Persian nation is made up of many tribes. Those which Cyrus assembled and persuaded to revolt from the Medes were the principal ones on which the others are dependent. These are the Parsergae, the Marfians, and the Maspians, of whom the Par, uh, the Pasardagae are the noblest. The Achaemenidae, from which spring all the Perseid kings, is one of their clans. So it seems like the Par, the Pasagade, they're like the nobles, and then one of the clans is the Achaemenidae, the Achaemenians. So, you know, it could be like Cyrus is part of the one part of the clan, and and the Achaemenids were the other, and then at some point there was some marriage in between, and that's how they're kind of legitimate, according to Herodotus. And I think we have to listen to Herodotus here, because he's writing just a hundred years later, and this is one of his main topics. Yeah, the war against the Persians. One hundred percent. And he's all into these tribes and whose fathers, fathers, and mother. Like he's really that's a big part of how they do stuff. So yeah. 
there is an interesting tablet to make this even more confusing. Oh, good. Uh, the Hamadan tablet, found in the first half of the 20th century. It's two gold tablets, talking about this Arya Ramnes guy. Uh, the father of the guy who is around at the same time as Cyrus. Yeah. Ruling this other Persian kingdom. The tablets document the reigns of Ariamnes and his son Arsamus. And they are written in Old Persian in the first person. And this is the only clear evidence of this other branch of the Achaemenid royal family. Mm-hmm. There's something there then. And then, of course, Darius makes a lot of claims supporting this later. Mm-hmm. But these tablets could be fake. Oh, really? Oh, that messes things up really bad then. So it doesn't uh, give us any clarity at all. Hamadan tablets. We're going to make a note of that and see if anything ever comes up with any new information on the, the fakeness of those. And it's a bit frustrating about the state of the sources for Cyrus compared to Alexander. Alexander is just 200 years later, and we know so much more about him. Mm-hmm. And they do something very similar. This enormous successful conquest, even though Cyrus is more peaceful than Alexander. Yeah. Cyrus can conquer with words. Yeah. And Alexander needs violence, but he's very good at it. Yeah, he is. Each good at what they're good at. So Cyrus is now on the throne of Anshan. He is still a vassal of the Medes. Okay. Astyages is his overlord. But that could change. I bet it does. And that's all we can say about Cyrus here. But we will return in two episodes talking more about Cyrus when he makes a power move. Yes, okay. And it will still be in this decade, but it won't be in this episode. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So now Cyrus will have to consolidate the kingdom of Ashan, make sure his dad, Cassin, doesn't fight him, and do something good with the kingdom. Yeah, so he will. So he's just getting the Cyrus video game started. 559, he's got the kingship. His father may be dead, may be abdicated. And he's maybe going to start playing games with his cousin or something. Be nice to him. Yes, he's probably just building farms and getting the economy going. Yes, he's building. Exactly, you got it. It's what he's doing. And a king that is ahead of Cyrus in having the economy going is the pharaoh of Egypt, Amasis the second. Oh, all right. Everything is going great in uh, Egypt. Okay. There are no Persians in sight to destroy Egypt yet. Good thing. We know quite a bit about Amasis's court. We have a, a gate guard, Amose Sanif, whose name appears on many monuments. We also have uh, the location of his sarcosis. <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> His his, uh, chest, coffin. Yeah, coffin, sarcophagus. There's so many of them. I was just at the Met Museum a couple weeks ago. There's like sarcophagi there like crazy. And I was at this tiny little museum in Baltimore. And they had like a sarcophagus there. They had so many of them. I think if you had enough money, you could get one in your house. The Egyptians love so many. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, This guard guy, Amose Sarnith, is referenced on monuments in the 30th dynasty. Oh. We are only in the 26th dynasty. Yeah, that's what, yeah, wow. So he must have been a very important gate guard. He must have been. We also have Vahibre, who is at the court of Amasis II. And Vahibre's position is leader of the southern furniers hmm. and head of the doors of furniers. 
Oh, he, that's probably the Jews on Elephantine Island because that's where the they were they 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 kept them there to you know guard against the Ethiopians. Elephantine is to the south, right? Yeah, it's to the south, and the, most of the Greeks are up the north. I think his main issue is uh, Nubians. Yeah, the Nubians. Yeah, it's like the very end. Elephantine Islands at the very end of the Nile, like the last cataract or whatever. And they, he's probably the highest official for border security. Yeah, and of course they only have to guard their southern border right now. Right now, yeah. But doom will come for Egypt from the north. Yeah. Although you, I just was listening. I guess in our last episode, on we we think that maybe the Babylonians tried a little quick invasion of the north. I guess uh, that didn't work. It didn't work, though. Uh, there's also a famous doctor, Udja Horesnet, hmm. who is working at the court under Amasis II, and he will become important to the Persians. I see. We also know the name of several admirals, heads of the fleet. The Egyptian fleet is probably a Greek thing. Yeah, they're building fleets, though. The, I mean, can I t- Couple interesting things I read about um, Egypt when I was just recently been reading Herodotus quickly. One about the doctors. So he's Herodotus says that their doctors they didn't have like you weren't a doctor. You'd be like they had like an eye doctor, they had a doctor of the stomach, a doctor. So different kinds of doctors. He says that, and then this was amazing to me. He's and maybe everybody knows this, and I just didn't know it. He said that when the Nile flooded, it it didn't just like flood a little. It flooded a lot. And they would sail around on and ships like it was like a big lake basically to get around to and the cities were like islands when it would flood. So they must have you know they they weren't like the worst sailors in the world. Let's put it that way. As long as they stayed on the Nile, they are probably fine. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, th- this is uh, almost a deceptive era of peace and prosperity for Egypt. Yeah, because the fall of Egypt is so close. But everything looks great. We have a long period of peace here. Maybe it's like the Romans, how they brought in all these barbarians for their armies, and then the Egyptians brought in all these Greeks and, and you know, Semites for their army. I've always felt that this uh, bringing in of Greeks into Egypt is not that dangerous because they tend to stay in the north. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now we have agriculture, commerce, good administration... And culture and art. So we see clearly how prosperous this period is for um, for Egypt. Mm-hmm. And there are Greeks everywhere. Yeah. But they are a part of this. They're helping out. And they're also helping out Amasis uh, to um, with his control of the Egyptians. Remember, he overthrew the rightful pharaoh. Yeah. And he does this partly with the help of Greeks. Yeah. And you have something from Herodotus here. I just, yeah, I was, I was just trying to, when I see things, um, Herodotus says about what's going on there. He says, the Ionians and the Carians occupied for many years the places assigned them by Semiticus, which lay near the sea, a little below the city of Bubastis on the Pelusaic mouth of the Nile. And he says, King Amasis long after removed the Greeks hence and settled them at Memphis to guard him against the native Egyptians. Yeah, exactly. So Greeks to protect himself against Egyptians. Yeah, but then Herodotus also said when he became king that the other king, the priest, was the one that got ousted. Right? He used the, he had m- Greek mercenaries, and the Egyptians just were so mad at the king. So 
Everybody's using Greeks. Everybody uses Greeks. I mean, I, every time, I always say it, but every time you see, like, pictures of Egyptian warriors, I mean, maybe it's wrong, but they just, like, they just have, like, a skirt on, basically, and no shirt and, like, a bow and arrow, and then you see Greeks are loaded in armor, head to t- toe with spears. Yeah, they pick a Greek anytime. It was kind of like the Spanish fighting against the Mexicans, you know? The Machico and come in with these suits of armor on. They just get, take out a lot of guys when you're wearing armor. It's clearly like that. <laughs> and then we move to the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Okay. The winner from the fall of Assyria. We call it the Neo-Babylonian Empire, but Kingdom of Babylonia is old at this point. Oh, yeah. Over 1,200 years have passed since the Empire of Hammurabi. And this is, in a sense, the same kingdom. With its its power centered at the city of Babylon. Yeah. And the empire is ruled by Neriglissar, who just seized power from uh, Amel Marduk in 560. Oh, right. In our last episode. Yep. Neriglissar married into Nebuchadnezzar's family. And the common theory is that he is married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Kashaya. But he could be married to another one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. It's not clear. Hmm. He might, uh, Neriglissar might even be of Aramean ancestry. Okay. But he has been a prominent official in general during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And now he has outmaneuvered Amal Marduk and seized power. And Amal Marduk was dead, right? Yes. Nerglis and his father might even have been from the Armenian clan Pugudu. I've heard them before. It's the same uh, name as the province from which Belshum Ishkun came. Aha. So Nerglisar was a general and a businessman, a landowner during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We have records of him buying stuff and uh, doing well. He makes a move to control his throne after he is now safely on it. He marries his daughter Gigitum to Nabushuma Ukin. That sounds like a king name. Yeah, for sure. But he's just the administrator of the Asida Temple in Borsippa and a very important religious leader. But this is uh, to, to get the priests on his side. Yeah, you need the priests on your side in Babylon for sure. We don't know a lot about Neriglissar's first two years as the king of Babylon. We know he... Continued construction and repair work on the Esagila, the giant main temple in Babylon. Yeah. He also repaired the royal palace and uh, did some work on the eastern bank of the Euphrates after its annual flooding. He has a son, Nerglesar. All right. This is Labashi Marduk. Labashi Marduk. Yes, it means, Oh Marduk, may I not come to shame. That's a horrible, wimpy name, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the sources differ on how old Labashimarduk is, but this is like the Assyrian kings. We never know their age. Yeah. Nerglissa has been around for some time, so I think Labashimarduk could be like 15 or 25 or 25. I don't know. Okay. okay. And then the question is, who is his mother? If it's Kachaya... Or the other daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Labashimarduk's claim to the Babylonian throne is pretty strong. Because mm-hmm. then it has a direct line to this, the fantastic kings that founded the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Right. But there are also two other daughters 
Inin Etteratenbau Asitu. And Nerglissa could be married to them. Oh. But the common opinion is that it's his Kashaya. Okay. But then we also have the possibility that Labashi Marduk is the son of Nerglissar and another wife. Ay, ay, ay. And thus he has no connection to Nebuchadnezzar at all. You know what I just thought of? They should make. They should have one of those, you know, talk shows where they can have come and have a DNA test, and they can say, "Hey, here's who you are." Who is your mother, Lavashi <laughs> Marduk? Yeah, did you ever? Do you have those in Sweden? We just have. It was like more. There's the guy's show. He would come on, and you would do the DNA test, and you would say who the father was. <laughs> if you can see that on Swedish TV, it's an American program. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. So. All looks well now. We have a king, we have a crown prince, but do you remember Nabonidus, Bernie? I do. I do. He's just waiting in the wings. He must be a million years old, too. He could actually be 62 years old in 559 BC. Yeah. And remember his mother? I do remember his mother. She's the Assyrian princess, Adubi Gupta. Gupa. We are... We're not 100% sure that she is the daughter of Ashurbanipal, but that's one common theory. Yeah. And she is then in her 80s, at least here. At least, yeah. She lives to be like over 100. Yes, and very notably over 100. She's quite famous for it. Adad Gupi. Adad, that's right. Adad Gupi. Nabonidus has had a prominent career. Maybe he was there at the, the Battle of the Eclipse. Yeah. Which is now 26 years in the past. Yeah, back in those days. Yeah, so if he was 20 then, 15 to 20 or 30, yeah, he'd be up in there. He had an important position there, so it must have been over 30, I think. Oh, sure, then if he was a general, then so if he was 30 and it's 20, he's in his 50s, pushing 60. He might also be married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Oh. Which means that Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar, could be another grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, all right. But this could also be propaganda. Mm-hmm. It, it is less clear that, he's, that Nabonidus is married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar than the fact that King Nerglissar is married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Nerglissar is the king and Nabonidus is in the wings. Yeah, he's just an important person. There is a Babylonian historian during the Hellenistic period that is named Berossus. Berossus. He writes a lot about this period, and he says that Nabonidus is a priest of Bel. Yes, that would be Marduk. And he obviously seems very religious. Definitely. So he could very well be a priest. Yeah. And I think you could combine priesthood with other responsibilities. For sure. That would be just like the cardinals and such in the Middle Ages, you know, where they they were a cardinal, but that gave them power. Yeah, and uh, Julius Caesar was the... uh, yeah. Was the head priest of Rome. Correct. It's something like that's exactly what it's like. Pontifex Maximus. Nadius Maximus. In uh, Adad Guppi's inscriptions, because there are inscriptions from Adad Guppi, uh, Nabonidus' mother, she says that she introduced Nabonidus to King Nebuchadnezzar II and to King Neriglisser. Okay. And that Nabonidus thereafter performed duties for them day and night and regularly did whatever pleased them. Yikes. <laughs> Nabonidus. No, no, not like oh. that, I think. <laughs> All right. 
Please don't put that on my anything or inscribe anything like that about me after I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> so Nabonidus maybe has a pretty good relationship to Neuglissar here. Yeah. Nabonidus is a learned man. He knows how to write. He, we also have records that he quarreled with priests and scholars. Mm. So he seems to be a powerful courtier and priest, and he's like everywhere. Yeah. And he also seems to be the friend of Neruglissar after being the friend of Nebuchadnezzar. He's definitely one of those Game of Thrones guys that's like the schemers, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure Barossus could have told us more, but we have lost his works. Yeah. So we only have quotes from Barossus when somebody else tells us of this. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the fact. Uh, in 558, we know very little about what Neruglissar does as the king of Babylon. But he does... Uh, to uh, work on the Chapel of Destiny in the inner city shrine of the New Year Festival in Babylon. Okay. So he's observing the religious duties. But in 557, it's time for Babylon to go to war. Oh, finally. Let's go. Let's get some battles. Yes. And we are going to attack Apuvashu, the king of... Uh, what's this place? Oh, Cilicia. A small thing. A Oh, it's it's a small kingdom in Cilicia, but it's not the kingdom of Cilicia. Oh. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny kingdom led by this Apuvashka. It's called Piridu. Oh, Pirindu. Or Pirindu. So there's still some little, tiny little places hanging around as buffer states. Probably they were vassals to the Babylonians. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. They're vassals of somebody. But now this guy, there are reports coming in to Neruglissar that this guy is doing something bad, that he, he is planning a revolt. Mm-hmm. And Nerglissar thinks that this is probably the case, so let's go to war. And I assume that Nerglissar getting the army together is not like the Assyrian kings doing their yearly raid, but yeah. it is an impressive army. Yeah, he should. I mean, he should still have a good army. And the dating of this uh, war is between 557 and 556. We are now moving into 556. Oh, gotcha. We have this on the Chronicle, so that's great, because the Chronicle came back now. Oh, great. The Chronicle. We love it. Yeah. Apuvashu <laughs> uh, sees the Babylonians coming a mile away, and he prepares ambushes and attacks, but he just has nothing against the might of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So Neruglissar wins, takes the capital of Piridu, which is called Ura, okay. sacks it like a good old Assyrian king. We don't even know where this place Ura is, but it seems likely that it is on the Turkish Mediterranean coast as far east as you can get. Okay. Uh, on the Calicadnus Delta. Okay. Calicadnus Delta, yeah. We also have uh, Ugarit mentioning it in the 13th and 14th century BC, the port of Ura. Do you know of Ugarit? Yeah, they, they're, they're literally writing the letter. They're coming, they're coming. <laughs> yes, it's this amazing place that gets destroyed by the Sea Peoples Yeah, in the Bronze Age Collapse. I'm, so that's this place seems like a sort of like a Neo-Hittite sort of area, one of those little kingdoms that like, the Assyrians were always conquering. Yes, it's so Moria. Sort of a little hold out there. Like you said, a vassal too. Yes. So big victory for Nerglissar. But he's not satisfied with this. 
So he goes 65 kilometers to the north along the Goksu River and attacks another place, the city of Kirshu, which was probably loyal to this Apuvashu guy. Oh. And the faith of Apuvashu is not clear. He escapes. It's like a real Miranak Baladin character. <laughs> yes. But this attack on Kirshu brings um, Nariglisa very close to Lydia. Oh, right. And then they have a, so now Croesus is probably aware that the new Babylonian army is very close to the southern Lydian border. But Nariglisa isn't done. He's still on the warpath. Okay. There is an island called Pitusu, hmm. two miles offshore. Yeah, I mean, that's an amphibious assault if I ever heard it. Yeah. Yeah, he does an amphibious assault. Yeah, right. In some way. And maybe he's pursuing this Apuvashu guy. Because then he attacks uh, a settlement in the mountain passes at the very border of Lydia. And takes that too. But now Apuvashu disappears from history. And uh, Neruglissa has control of this area. Which is yeah. interesting because it's a buffer state between Babylonia, Lydia, and Media. We have a chronicle account here. Do you want to read it? It says, quote here. Just, all right, let's do it. Ready? Puasu, yeah. king of Perindu, mustered a large army and set out to plunder and sack Syria. Neruglisser mustered his army and marched to whom to oppose him. Before his arrival... Apuasu placed the army and cavalry which he had organized in a mountain valley ambush. When Neriglisser reached him, he inflicted a defeat upon them and conquered the large army. The army and numerous horses were captured. He pursued Apuasu for a distance of 15 double hours and marched through difficult mountains where men must walk in single file as far as Ura, the royal city. He captured him, seized Ura, and sacked it. When he had marched for a distance of six double hours through rough mountains and difficult passes from Ura to Kirsi, his forefather's royal city, he captured Kirsi, the mighty city, his royal metropolis. He burnt its wall, its palace, and its people, Pitusu, a land in the midst of the ocean, and 6,000 combat troops who were stationed in it, he captured by means of boats. He destroyed their city and captured their people. In that same year, from the pass of Saloon to the border of Lydia, he started fires. Apuasu fled, so he did not capture him. End quote. Area Syrian, isn't it? It reminds me of Ashur Nasipal II. Remember when the Assyrian soldiers made inflated skins and swam across a river? This is a very successful campaign. Yeah. He does a lot of things. He must have had Phoenicians helping him. I mean, remember you said last episode that they had Egyptians and such, and they were building boathouses and things like that. Sounds like maybe like, you know how like the United States invaded Grenada? They were like, give a little, you know, it's a small little country. Let's try out our amphibious assault team. You have to question what Apuvasha was doing. Why did he think that this could succeed. I mean, I could see how you could think. He said that they walked at a mountain pass, which only single file, so he figured he could ambush them. It was his area. Then he thought he can get to the island. Who just thinks the Babylonians are going to come and sail to an island and attack you? Serious miscalculation by Apuvashu. For sure. And just one other thing I noticed in it, reading the quote, is like, it sounds Assyrian, but you notice he said he did. He's, you know, the Babylonian scribes wrote it that way, where the Assyrian would have wrote, I did, I, I. 
Ah, that's a difference. You're correct. Yeah. I have to promote my uh, Sargon quote where I I tell Sargon's story about himself for 40 minutes on our YouTube channel. Yes, you do. I've heard that. In my epic voice. And that's how he says, I, I burned with fire. (laughs) But it's all saying, I burned with fire. I took his warriors. I took his horses. His royal city. Difficult passes. Sounds so Assyrian. Yes. After doing all this in the third person, Nerglissa returns home in February 556 BC. Yeah. And uh, here's a calculation that according to what Xenophon would later do, this journey home would take 50 days for Nerglissa. And it's telling that he's campaigning so far from Babylon itself. Yeah. So either he was sure that the Medes wouldn't do anything. Could be, yeah. Or he did this in cooperation with the Medes. Or he felt that he had to do this to stop a future Median advance. Remember, the Babylonians had built the Median walls right. to keep them out. So they are preparing for conflict with the Medes. But it will not be the Medes that will attack them. It will be the Persians. Probably it's the Medes with them. But so far... There are only victories for Nerglissar, the fourth king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Long may he reign. Long may he reign. Maybe. And uh, he will do so in our next episode. Okay. Well, let's find out about that then. I can't tell you the name of that episode because that will spoil uh, Nerglissar's faith. All right, perfect. Well, I can't wait to hear about it, actually. You're leaving us, at a, you're leaving us with a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. And if you like our podcast, please uh, find it in your heart to contribute to it on Patreon. Search for Fan of History and share it with uh, people you think will enjoy it. Yes, if you can't afford to send us a couple bucks a month, then sharing it would be a big help as well. A very big help. Go do that right now. After you finish it, say, hey, I just listened to a really cool podcast. Put it on your Facebook page or your Instagram or any other social media. We would be very grateful. I would. And then next time we'll be back and we'll talk a lot about Babylonia before we do more Cyrus in the third episode. Okay, perfect. Let's get right after it. See you next time. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fan of history. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks and see you next time.